Thanks for joining us today. If you have any questions, please email us at info at If you would like to support this ministry financially, visit us at capitalchristian.com and click the Give button in the top right corner. Well, if you turn to your Bibles to John chapter 6, John chapter 6, just read a few verses. John chapter 6, turn to your neighbor, say hello, give him a high five, tell me how much you love him. All right, this is John. Uh, if you're taking notes, you can write this down. The title of my message is simple. It's uh, Grace and Gratefulness. Grace and Gratefulness. Uh, verse 1, John writes, After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. So Jesus went up on the mountain because he's the new Moses. That's what John is telling us. And there he sat down with his disciples. Now, the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. So John is telling us that we should connect the Passover, which is the freedom of God's people, with this story about what Jesus does with five loaves and two fish. Verse 5, lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? And he said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. So Philip answered him, 200 denarii would not buy enough bread for each of them to get even a little. One of his disciples, and let, let me just say, qualify, 200 denarii today would be approximately, off the top of my head because I'm such a mathematician, about 20,000, right? So one of his disciples, uh, verse 8, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? And Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. And then Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, could you say thanks? When he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. Verse 12, and when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled, filled 12 baskets with fragments from the barley, five barley loaves <coughs> left by those who had eaten. In verse 14, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. And all God's people said, amen. I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes as we pray. Father, we thank you for uh, your goodness. We thank you that you're here today. And we just say yes to you, Holy Spirit. Say what you want to say. Do what you want to do. And I just thank you for blessing every son and daughter in this room. We thank you for your word. And we're so thankful this morning for all that you have done for us. In Jesus' name. And everyone said. So I want to talk about gratefulness. Uh, before I do that, I want to talk a little bit about um, complaining. I'm sure no one's ever experienced complaining before. Uh, Shane, uh, I think last year, uh, cited an article, and I'm just going to use a similar articles. Travis Bradbury, you can check it out. He wrote this article a couple, a couple years ago, and he talks about complaining. And through his research, he uh, discovered that people complain once a minute during a typical, typical conversation. I'm sure no one does that. Um, I, I found it ironic as I was um, writing this message, 
that I was complaining to myself that I didn't have enough time to write this message. So it was you know, mutually reinforcing. And the reason why people um, complain is it's pretty simple. It feels good, right? Um, eating, it's, it's kind of like eating a maple bar, right? It feels good. Or a pound of bacon. Or even for those, even though we understand the destructive effects of smoking on the body, um, because it feels good, we, we do it. So complaining is cathartic for many people. Uh, some of us in this room, we, we still don't realize how much we complain. Uh, we, we do complain. It's, it's part of, it's kind of woven into um, our makeup as humans. Complaining, though, is toxic. Neuro, neuropsychologists, they call it um, the neuroplasticity of the brain. Uh, and the reason why complaining is so toxic is because your brain wants to repeat certain behaviors. So the more you do something, we've talked about this, the more you do something, the easier it becomes to repeating it. So this is kind of a, like um, a scientific um, aphorism. Neurons fire together will wire together. So the more you do a particular behavior, the more that particular behavior, whether that's eating maple bars or smoking or complaining or watching TV or, you know, whatever, going to Starbucks, the more apt your brain wants to um, repeat that behavior. So the more we complain, however, this is what neuropsychologists are telling us, uh, the more you rewire your brain for negativity. Am I depressing people here? Um, apparently I am. Um, the more you complain, the more you rewire your brain for negativity. In fact, if you want to look at the DNA or the, the, um, the building blocks of complaining, um, it's, it's essentially focusing on all the wrong things, right? Um, it's like, I wish I was taller. I wish I was a baller, right? Uh, it's funny, long time ago, I haven't experienced this recently, but a long time ago, I thought, I, I woke up and I put on... Um, this, man, this killer outfit. I, I loved it. I, th I just thought everything was just, it was smooth. Have you ever felt smooth? Okay, there you are. Okay. We're awake now. Okay. Um, you ever, I, I felt smooth one day, and I was going around, and I was just like, man, I'm just like, I'm in my early 20s, loving life. It's a sunny day. Um, birds are singing. And then I saw another guy with a nicer outfit than me. And I instantly got depressed and started thinking about all the, the negative things, things I didn't have, et cetera. This is, this is kind of part of, of who we are. I think it's important that we acknowledge it. Um, unfortunately, complaining, what it does, and, and again, neuroscientists will tell us, is that it shrinks the hippocampus. If you don't know what that is, some of you are like, what is that, Chris? Well, let me tell you. It is the area of the brain that's central for problem solving and intelligence. So it, it, it destroys your ability to think through problems when you're focusing on the wrong things. So complaining is toxic. In fact, it makes you stupid. That's, that's, that's my layman's term of all the science and research. Complaining makes you stupid. How many of you feel really good this morning? Right? Uh, in fact, uh, this area, the hippocampus, is the primary area destroyed by Alzheimer's. So it's kind of like uh, my family and I, we went to uh, Christopher Robin yesterday. Been there? Been to that movie? 
not there, but been in that movie. And uh, we had a wonderful time. And Winnie the Pooh was really negative. He called himself the bear with no brains, right? Uh, this is what happens, though, literally, uh, physiologically, in your brain when you complain. You lose some of your brain. Neuroscientists, we're not talking pastors, uh, and I'm not trying to moralize. Maybe you're, you're trying to figure out the Christian thing. Maybe this is like your first time to church. I'm not trying to moralize here. So this is not what pastors, pastors would suggest that you don't do this. But neuroscientists are now suggesting because of all the research and what they now know about the effects, the toxic effects of complaining, that you should avoid complainers. Why? Well, People, if you don't know this, are ultra-social. Now, we all exist on a continuum. Some of you, you love fall, right? You love to pick up a book, get like an, a blanket, watch Pride and Prejudice, and, and sip like some hot tea. Anyone like that? Okay, that's like my kind of thing. Some of you are summer people. You're weird. You love spending time with people. You love to mingle. You love to party. You don't like books. You just, you get strength and energy from being with people, Right? So, but even if you exist on the introvert where you just want to like crawl up into like a bed and put a blanket on or whatever, or if you really, you're just a summer person, you love to be with people, it doesn't matter. We are, as people, ultra social, which means we mimic the moods of those around us. The downside of this is obvious. We can pick up complaining like it's the flu. In fact, complaining, according to Travis Bradbury, is like secondhand smoke. You don't have to smoke to suffer the effects. So, we have this text on John chapter 6. I'm going to get there really quick. Complaining, the background uh, story of John 6, is found in Exodus chapter 16. And complaining is the major theme of this story. It's a story about God's people. They're on their way to a land flowing with what? Land flowing with milk and honey. They have to go through the wilderness, and what do they start doing? They're given manna. Uh, manna's not good enough. It's not a gift. They don't want it. They want to go back to their slavery, to a dehumanized situation, uh, because they considered they saw manna not as a gift, but as a problem, and so they started to complain. And this is one of the more tragic um, passages in Scripture because God refused, based on their complaining, to let them go in or enter into a land, the promised land, flowing with milk and honey. I, man, I wish in Exodus 16 that the text said something like the people of God went psycho. They started killing people, right? Or they were narcissists or they were stealing stuff because that would make me feel better about myself, right? Because then I'm like, we're qualitatively different uh, and we still have like a shot at entering the promised land, but it wasn't because they were psycho that they couldn't enter into the promised land. It wasn't because they were narcissists that they couldn't enter into the promised land. It was because they were ungrateful. And they complained and they complained and they complained. So the DNA of, of complaining is this, it's, it's focusing on the wrong thing. It's, if you want to break it down to its theological roots, it's questioning the very goodness of God. In fact, complaining will hijack our thinking about the goodness of the kingdom of Jesus, and we don't even know it. You know, it's funny, we, uh, the last two years we've been in like a, a national conversation about, and you, I, I'm not, I don't care where you're, at, where you're at on the continuum when it comes to this statement, we've been talking about making America great. 
If you like that statement, great. If you don't like that statement, great. I'm not trying to get behind any political candidate. I'm just saying that's the national conversation, right? Let's make America great again. I, I think we should change it. I think we should make America more grateful. We talk about making it great. How about we just start? Learning the art of gratefulness. Well, we can't, we can't make America grateful again. How about we make the church grateful again? So here's the thing. So why is, and before I get to John 6, I, I just want to build an argument here about why we um, should practice gratefulness. Uh, why complaining is maladaptive in the world that we live, in the kingdom of Jesus. In other words, complaining is fundamentally wrong. Why, you might ask. Well, first, it's, it's funny, I was thinking through this, praying through this a couple weeks ago, this, this message, and uh, I started researching um, online uh, a favorite scholar of mine, historian, uh, he, and I found out that he had a son, and that the son uh, was a high school English prof. So he gave a commencement speech, and I decided to listen to this commencement speech because it went viral and everyone was raving about it. And so um, in his high school commencement speech, um, in roughly 2013, he gives it to um, like a 1,000 seniors. And it was made famous for his use of you're not special at least nine or 10 times. And people loved it, and they were like, yeah, you're not special, millennials. And we're not like that here at Capital Church. Uh, we believe in every generation. Can I get an amen? His thesis, though, wasn't to, and I, I read through it, I listened to it, wasn't to berate high school seniors, but to inspire young people to get everything out of life. How many think that's a good thing? Okay. Um, his critique, though, um, which was, I, I actually agree with this, his critique was against the collective lust for success. Uh, he talked about the comforts of complacency, the specious in his words, the specious glitter of materialism, the narcotic paralysis of our way of life or our way of thinking. He's an English prof, so he loves to mix and match words, right? But I loved it. He then declared, and I find this fascinating. Um, he says the fulfilling life, in his words, the distinctive life, the relevant life is an achievement, not something that will fall into your lap because you're a nice person or mommy ordered it from the counter. First service really laughed at that one. <laughs> this is a little bit younger crowd. None of you laughed at that one. All right. <laughs> he then, he refers, and I'm kind of just paraphrasing some of the stuff. He refers to our founding father's basis of our republic, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So he defines the meaning of life is found in the pursuit. And this is what he said, the pursuit which leaves, I should think, little time for lying around watching parrots roller skating on YouTube. And then he quotes um, President Roosevelt's maxim. And he says, the strenuous life is the good life. And then he turns to Thoreau, and if you're an English lit, you're probably, you're loving this, most of you, maybe not. But he turns to Thoreau and points to Thoreau's deep longing, and in his words, said, drive life into a corner to live deep and to suck out the morrow. Love that. I'm not sure what that even means. And then he uh, quotes another poet who advises us to row, row into the swirl and into the royal. His understanding of life is that it's an achievement. You got to take it. You got to conquer it. 
If, if you love summer, suck the marrow out of it, right? If you love ice cream, suck the marrow out of ice cream. I don't know if that's possible. Do it, right? Like you got to conquer. If you want to do something great, you got to take it, right? You got to own it. You got to achieve it. This is his understanding of life. It was interesting. I was thinking about it. I remember a long time ago, uh, I uh, read a little bit of Emerson. And uh, if you don't know this, he wrote in 1844, which captures the spirit of America. And he wrote this thing, little piece in 1844. It says, it is not in the office of a man to receive gifts. How dare you give then? We wish to be self-sustained. And then he kind of ends with this doxological, like, little ring. He says, we do not quite forgive a giver. What was he saying? What is this English prof saying? What is Emerson saying? Well, life's an achievement because we are ultimately self-sufficient. Behind all of this is this idea that you and I as people, we're, uh, we're the ones in charge. In other words, the structure of the universe, we'll call this cosmology, is um, organized around achievement and taking and this Darwinian struggle of the fittest, right? Um, it's this Promethean quest to take fire from the gods. It's, it's, the, it's the atmosphere, I wanted to say zeitgeist, but it's the atmosphere of America. Like, you don't have to believe this to, to feel it. Many of us, we feel this when we go to school and when we go to work and when we live our lives and we come home and we spend time with our kids. We, you might not share this view, but we feel it. And it does affect us. In fact, it's much like going to, have you ever been to a restaurant before, let's say a barbecue restaurant, and you didn't eat anything, but you left the restaurant smelling like barbecue? That's what happens to a lot of people. You might not believe that life is an achievement, but it's, it's, it's all around. And it's important that we, that we um, critique this. Now, I believe achieving things, man, man, achieving, that's great. I, I'm, I'm a competitor. I'm very competitive. Uh, I've, I'm a pastor now, so I can't show you how competitive I am when I play volleyball or board games or whatever. But deep down inside, just so you know, if you ever compete with me in anything, I want to destroy you inside. <laughs> So I'll put a happy face on, but I just, I thrive on competition. My wife th thrives on different things. I just, on vacation, I just want to compete with somebody. It's a little weird. So I don't think there's anything wrong with competition. We're not saying if you achieve anything, that's great. If you want to climb, climb Mount Everest, do that. If you want to make money uh, for the glory of God, that's, that's great. We're not saying anything against achievement. What we're saying is life is not reducible yeah. to achievement. Like the structure of the world is not um, ordered around achievement. What the Bible tells us and what we find in John chapter 6, that life is not an achievement. Life, if you're taking notes, you can write this down, is a gift. Amen. It's a gift. In fact, um, you and I are not achievers as followers of Jesus. We are receivers. We're receivers. You might not like this illustration, but I love it, so you're just going to have to go with me. Um, but I love football, and I just, wide receivers. Like, I don't know much about wide receivers, but I do know they have a route tree, and uh, I do know that they have to run fast, like a 4-4. Uh, 
Uh, they have to have big hands, and they need to know a go route and um, a slant and a post. I think those are things, right? Um, but wide receivers are totally dependent upon the quarterback to throw them the ball. The quarterback has to read the defense. The quarterback has to figure out what's going on. And then the quarterback has to throw to the receiver. We are much like that. We are not in charge of our lives. Um, we, we don't live by achievement alone. We are not achievers. We are receivers. What does that mean? We're recipients of a benefit or benefits or promises or grace. We're not proprietors. We're not owners. We're not possessors. Everything from salvation to existence to hope to our strengths and our talents to this church, what we have in Jesus from all the big fancy words of redemption and forgiveness and all the things that we find in Scripture with abundance and generosity, all of that is a gift. It's a gift. Life, then, is grace. It's grace. Hear me. It's grace. You didn't invent yourself. We talked a little bit about this last week. You didn't create your body. Like, you didn't exist in some pre-existent state a priori and then decided to make yourself up. You're not in charge of uh, your strengths and your talents, you do not create yourself. Everything you have right now, people don't think like this, but you need to think like this. This is our starting point. If you don't start here, everything goes wrong. But if you start from this assumption that everything that you have in life is a gift, that's when you can learn abundance and generosity and then the practice of gratefulness. C.S. Lewis, he said, I'm a product of long corridors, empty sunlit rooms, upstairs indoor silences, attics explored in the solitude, distant noises of gurgling in cisterns, pipes, etc., reading books. What is he saying? He's subverting this Emerson world that's embarrassed about gifts. He's saying, I'm a product. One of the greatest thinkers in the 20th century said, I'm a product. I didn't come up with all this stuff. I'm a product of this person and that relationship and that mentor. And come on, and I can say the same thing about my own life. The reason why I'm here is because when I was 17 years old and I was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, my youth pastor, Jonathan Owens, I remember it. He came to my house and he spent two hours just listening to me and talking with me and praying with me. And that was formative for my life. I'm a, I'm a product or I am here today not because of any achievement, I'm here because my mom and my dad, they planted this church in 1983, and they had a vision to build for the kingdom in the city, and they lived and they practiced what they preached. They would come home, and I had the best mom and dad. Of course, they weren't perfect. Like, my dad doesn't love the Dallas Cowboys, right? But they set an example for me. I'm a product of good parents. I'm a product of mentors. I'm a product of a healthy church, not a perfect church but a healthy church and people that have poured into my lives. I'm a product of just reading and reading and reading and reading. And I used to think, why am I so weird? Why do I think of big words? And people would ask me and they would critique me and you need to like soften your words and I've totally softened everything, I promise you. I could go deep if I really wanted to, but I'm softening everything, right? And I've learned that I have to. But I remember thinking, I'm, 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 I'm a misfit, but I realized I'm a product of books and theologians and scholars and thousands of years of church tradition and theology. I'm not an achiever. I'm a receiver. 
I'm a product of man. If you grew, how many grew up in the church in the 80s? Anyone like that? Okay, actually most of you. So none of you are going to get this. Uh, man, I'm a product of Petra. You guys remember Petra? White Hart. Come on, I loved White Hart. Loved it so much. Michael W. Smith, Sandy Patty. Uh, my sister, she still loves Amy Grant. Wants Amy Grant to be your best friend. You know, it's just like we're a product of life is a gift, and we are the result of all these different influences in our life. Amen. Amen. So what we find in 1 Corinthians 4, 6 through 8 is an affirmation that life is a gift. And Paul writes, before we get to John 6 and we talk a little bit about gratefulness, uh, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 4 to this church in Corinth, they're struggling with boasting, uh, they really believe that they've achieved everything in their life. Uh, they don't think of themselves as receivers. Uh, they practiced, they're practicing the art of magnification, which is a big thing in the ancient world. So verse 6, Paul's writing to them, and he says, I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up. Puffed up is a favorite word. For Paul, puffed up simply means your ego's enlarged. How many of you love Thanksgiving. How many of you eat too much at Thanksgiving? How many of you, after you're done eating, have to go put your stretchy pants on at Thanksgiving? That's what happens when you're puffed up. When you think that everything uh, is a result of your achievement, you're a taker, um, you don't need gifts, like you're in charge, you're in control, your uh, ego is enlarged and it becomes profoundly uncomfortable. That none of you, as Paul says, may be puffed up in favor of one against another. And then he says in verse 7, for who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? Come on, turn to your neighbor and say, what do you have? Turn and say, what do you have? I love this. It's almost like Paul's, this is like a challenge. I don't know why I'm talking like this, right? But we'll go. What did you have that you did not receive? It's a challenge. It's almost like, hey, 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 you try. I want you to try. I want you to try to figure out something that you have that's based on your achievement. That's essentially what Paul is saying. If then you've received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all you want in King Jesus. Already you have become rich. In the chapter before this, Paul says that, man, everything belongs to you if you belong to Jesus. The universe, the cosmos, all the great and precious promises, all the grace. You were a nobody, now you're somebody because of King Jesus. All of that belongs to you. And not only that, God has given you this royal vocation. You're now kings and queens. So you become rich. Without us, you have become kings in King Jesus. And would you, and Paul then gets a little sarcastic, and all the sarcastic people, you're going to love this, and would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. The next, I want to give you another scripture just to make the point that we are receivers. If you could put up 1 Corinthians 15, 10 through 11, Paul changed the world. Verse 10 says, but by the what? The grace of God. I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. We find in a few more passages, I want to read through this really quick. I'm not quite sure what the next, James 1, 16 through 17. It says, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and every perfect gift 
is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So every good gift, every perfect gift, every thank you, every little tiny blessing, you might think it's little, but there are signs that God is good and that he is a giver and that this world is structured around generosity and grace and gift and goodness. Essentially, what, what James is saying is God is a giver and he's not a tease. God's not going to promise you something and then just kind of tease. He's not going to tantalize you with a promise or, hey, I'm going to do something really good in your life and not bring it to fulfillment. God's not a tease. God is good and he loves to give us good gifts. Loves to give us good gifts. We continue in Luke 11, 9 through 13. Jesus is talking about his disciples. He's talking to his disciples. He's talking about the prayer, the Lord's prayer, as we call it. And uh, he gives us a, a picture of the cosmos. This is all about cosmology, how the world is structured. And verse 9, he says, And I tell you, ask, I love this, feel the words in this text, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be open to you. For everyone who asks, what? receives. The one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father, your father in heaven, give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Asking, giving, receiving, generosity, is the world that we live in. You don't own your blessings. You don't own your talents. How many of you have perfect pitch here? Okay, I, that was a trick question because I know you don't. I hear you every Sunday, right? <laughs> if you have perfect pitch, you don't own it. If you have talents, you don't own it. If you like to play tennis and you're really good at it, you didn't, you, you're not a proprietor of that. If we're not a proprietor of the gifts and the talents that we have, how could we ever own them? We receive them. Amen. We receive them not for our own sake, but for the sake of others. C.S. Lewis said this, you must have the capacity to receive or even omnipotence can't give at all. You need to learn how to receive. First Peter chapter 1, 3-5 continues with this grace theme. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You did not achieve salvation, forgiveness, grace, hope. All the promises that we find. Am I, am I too passionate this morning? I think maybe some of us need some caffeine this morning because this is good preaching. Man, we did not achieve any of this. We're not here today singing some good songs and listening to some good preaching because we deserve it. We're not achievers. We are receivers. So we come to John chapter 6, and we see this world. This is a fancy way of describing John 6, but what we find is that our world is a gifted cosmology, 
Again, let me just explain that. Our world is structured around gifts and grace, not around achievement. And what we find, as we read in John chapter 6, at the end of the story, Jesus feeds upwards of 20,000 people. Uh, we see that the kingdom of God looks, we see what the kingdom of God looks like. It's, it's a lavish celebration. There's seconds and thirds and fourths and fifths. I love that. Verse 11, Jesus takes the bread and fish and breaks it and gives it to the people in the words of John as much as they wanted. Don't you love that language? Verse 12, we find that they ate till they were filled. Totally greater than Thanksgiving, right? How many love going to a restaurant and leaving just satisfied? You had the right meal, right? So most we leave feeling a little disgusted with ourselves and a little bit of shame, but that's for another time, right? But they ate till they were filled. We find in verses 12 through 13 that they gathered all the leftover fragments. So we see that the kingdom of Jesus is about abundance and generosity and grace. It's extravagant. God loves the lavish creation with favor. God is a good God. He's not a, he's not a um, difficult God. He's not a distant God. He's not a God that doesn't really care about us. But he, his, his goodness is, you need to hear this, it's really good. And he pours out indiscriminately his love and his grace and gifts to all those who want it. The problem, and this is, I think, maybe our problem, my problem, is the beginning of the story. We find at the end of the story there's abundance and Jesus feeds 20,000 people. The problem, and I'm sure the disciples were thinking this, is that, man, how... How are we going to solve the problem which Jesus creates? He, he tests the disciples. He asks them the question, okay, guys, it's late. Um, everyone's really tired. Let's figure out a way to feed them. We have this problem. So if your kingdom is one of abundance and generosity, uh, we, we are in a place in the wilderness, and the background is Exodus chapter 16, right? The people of God went through the wilderness on their way to a land flowing with milk and honey. John is telling us Jesus is the new Moses. He's qualitatively different, but he is the new Moses. He's the fulfillment of all the law and the prophets. There's no one like Jesus. I just had to make that very clear. No one. Can I get an amen to that? No one like Jesus. He ranks higher than everyone else. It's not, there's no like close second He's in charge of human history. Everything from galaxies to atoms to people to protons, all of life falls under King Jesus. And so Jesus tests the disciples in this place of scarcity, and he says, guys, I want you to figure out, let's put together a plan, let's see what, how much food we have, and we'll feed uh, the crowd. Now the disciples, they knew right off, they knew right off that there was no chance in heaven that they were going to be able to feed, feed the people without, without um, a supernatural work. What they did, they didn't complain, like what we find in the Old Testament. What they did, and I think this is important that we all do, is they took what they found and they presented it to Jesus. They had no clue what to do. Like I still, some days, I feel like I have no clue what I'm doing, right? Apparently no one feels that way. Wow, you guys are amazing. Teach me your ways, please. Right, there are days we don't feel like uh, we know what we're doing, right? 
Um, when you feel that way, here's, here's an important message, I think theme that we find in John chapter 6, is that even though you don't feel like you can figure stuff out, even though maybe your life isn't fully put together, we know someone whose entire life is perfectly put together, who knows exactly what's going to happen, and that is Jesus. And so they take what they find, which is five loaves and two fish, and they present it to Jesus. I mean, I, there are stories about little, you know, the little boy and his lunch. I don't know what the disciples did. They looked around, and uh, they found this kid. I don't know if they took it, stole it, whatever. But they took five loaves, two fish. They presented it to Jesus. And I, gotta, I, I just got to imagine, what were they thinking? They look at the five loaves and the two fish. I, I'm sure, and it's pretty clear that they knew it was not enough to feed all the people, Right? I wish Jesus would have, and I'm sure Jesus, or I'm sure the disciples were thinking this, Jesus, why can't you just like send them to the countryside, right? Let's just, it's Sunday, I get it, but let's see if we can open up Chick-fil-A, get some Christian chicken, give it to all the people, right? Was that a bad joke? (laughs) Okay. Why can't you do that? Why can't, essentially they're saying send them away, but Jesus said, no, I want you to feed them. I think what the disciples are feeling in this moment, they're looking at five loaves and two fish, and they're like, you know what, this is not enough, they're thinking in line with apocalyptic scarcity. It's like, this is just, it's inadequate, it's little. We can't, we can't feed the people, Jesus, without a miracle. Uh, it, 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 to illustrate this, it'd be kind of like if Shane came up to me after the services and said, Chris, um, you know, we played basketball in the past. Just want to let you know, I talked to LeBron and Steph Curry, and uh, they want to play 2 on 2. So, and then Shane saying, I think we got a chance. <laughs> right? Inst- there's no chance, right? So you're saying there's a chance? No. Just, I'm sure this is exactly how the disciples were feeling. There's no chance. But they present the five loaves and the two fish to uh, Jesus. And what does Jesus do? Jesus takes the five loaves, the two fish. I'm sure he smiles. And he thanks the Father for bread and fish. Thanks the Father. What's thanksgiving? What's gratefulness? Gratefulness is the realization that this world is good, that we live by gifts. Jesus doesn't qualify, quantify, measure, try to figure out or scale the five loaves and the two fish. He just simply thanks the Father for what? For gift or gifts. See, the disciples did not see the five loaves and the two fish as gifts. They saw it as little and inadequate. Jesus saw differently. No, this is a gift from God. You see, gratefulness is, is non-existent in a world that's structured around achievement. In fact, gratefulness and grace or gifts are intimately bound up. What is to be what is gratefulness? What is gratitude? It's all connected to a Latin word, uh, grace. It's basically a basic recognition that this world is good, that you've received a benefit from someone. How many of you experienced the emotions or the feels of gratefulness? You've been surprised by somebody. Maybe you were out of gas and someone paid for your gas, or you had a traumatic experience and someone, a stranger, came and helped you. What are the feelings? The feelings of gratitude or gratefulness are, are many. Uh, some it's delight. For some, it's surprise, wonder, awe, joy. 
um, hope, encouragement, um, gratefulness is a basic recognition that you've received something you could never earn or deserve. And Jesus, he's trying to teach his disciples. He's testing them, remember. He's trying to teach them about gratefulness. Gratefulness with scarcity is what Jesus is teaching his disciples. So here's the thing. Why, why do we have such a problem with gift talk, grace talk? I think what happens is we look at our talents and our gifts and we compare them with what other people have and we get discouraged, right? Well, I only have five loaves and two fish. I don't know if I can do what God's called me to do. When Jesus sees what he's given us as gift, usually what we see what Jesus has given us as scarcity. Why? Because we compare. Not only do we compare, for some of us, we, you, are, are you with me this morning? Not only do we compare, I think we have problems in our life that happen. We go through circumstances, we go through difficult situations, and uh, if we're not careful, we focus on all the wrong things that are going on, and that hijacks our vision of the goodness of this world, of all the grace that God has given us. For example, there was a man who was um, a Holocaust survivor, and he was in an interview, and he was asked this question, uh, despite all the tragedy that you've had to see, uh, do you still have a place inside of you for gratefulness? His response was this. It's shocking. He goes, absolutely. He goes, right after the war, I went around telling people, um, thank you just for living, for being human. And to this day, the words that come most frequently from my lips are thank you. When a person doesn't have gratitude, he continues, something is missing in his or her humanity. A person can be defined by his or her attitude towards gratitude. And then he concludes, he says, for me, seeing the worst of life, I can still say every hour is filled with grace. Why is it we're no longer surprised by existence? We're no longer surprised by grace. We're no longer surprised by the goodness of this world. Food is good, people. We should just, we should be grateful every time we eat some food. Why do we say thank you when we eat our food? Because it's a gift from God. Not to be like unnecessarily scandalous this morning, but in the context of marriage, sex is good. Right? Family is good. Your relatives, except for Uncle Johnny, right? Everybody else, kidding. Every, life is good. That's our starting point. Are there problems? Yes. Has this world been defaced by radical evil and sin? Yes. But Jesus has given us the answer in his death, burial, and resurrection. He defeated the powers. And if we're not thunderstruck by that at least once a month, we might have a problem. Like when I give gifts to my kids, I, I got to be honest, I have an expectation, not because I want anything from them, but because I want them to know that they are um, benefactors, they're receivers. I have an expectation that they say thank you. When we give gifts to our kids and they're like, ah, ain't no thing, and they don't say thank you, I know in that moment that there's something wrong with their thinking. Thanksgiving is the dialect of the Christian. It's, it's our language. 
Henry Nouwen made it very clear um, that uh, being grateful, uh, not just for some of our life, but if we truly want to be grateful, we have to be grateful for all of our lives, is hard spiritual work. Because that's exactly what this Holocaust survivor was saying. Every hour, even though I have problems, even though I have difficulty, it's all grace. It's funny, in normal life, one scholar wrote, is it okay if I quote just a few people this morning? One scholar wrote, um, in normal life, one is not all aware that we always receive infinitely more than we give. And that gratitude is what enriches life. One easily overestimates the importance of one's own acts and deeds compared with what um, has been given to them through other people and through grace. Uh, um, I'm gonna riff off one little proverb uh, which starts with this, let us be grateful. Everyone say, let us be grateful. Let us be grateful for if we didn't receive a lot of followers on Instagram today, at least uh, we had a few followers. And if we didn't receive a few followers at all today, at least we didn't get a virus or get sick. And if we did get a virus today, and if we did get sick, at least we can be grateful that we didn't die. That's the spirit of gratefulness. Gratefulness, at the heart of it, the DNA of gratefulness is trusting that no matter what I'm going through, God is always good. And certainly some things don't make sense. However, we know that God is a giver and that what we have in life is good. So really quick, as, as I close, how do we enter into the abundance that God has for us? How do we live a miraculous life that we find in John chapter six? I think a lot of people struggle with this. A lot of people look at their talents and what they have and they say, it's not a lot, it's not enough, it's, it's inadequate. Jesus gives us the, the answer. He shows the disciples that if you thank the Father, that is the basis of every miracle in our life. I believe if we wanna live a miraculous life, we have to live a grateful life. In fact, they, they, they go hand in hand. Uh, in, in other words, this week, this is what I want you to practice. What you appreciate always appreciates in the kingdom of Jesus. In fact, it's funny, I, I realized this last week that there's like an, an economy in the kingdom of Jesus. It's kind of like the law of so, supply and demand, right? There's a relationship between supply and demand. There's also a relationship between what you appreciate and how it appreciates. In other words, appreciation, which is really uh, a part of woven through uh, gratefulness, it's recognizing uh, the value or the worth of something. It's, it's understanding that everything that you have is a gift and it comes from Jesus, it comes from God. And when you appreciate what you have, the value of what you have goes up. What you appreciate, appreciate. Some of you, you need to start appreciating your wife more. Or your husband, I should I said spouse? Some of you are complaining about your, your husband, your wife, your children, the dog, the work, your boss, and you don't realize that in the kingdom of Jesus, what you appreciate, when you realize that, yeah, things come, there are problems, but that when everything is really a gift from God, it, it enlarges your understanding of that gift, and that gift somehow grows explosively. 
in your life. But when you depreciate something, what you have, it depreciates. When you, in other words, when you focus on what you don't have, uh, you're, you're essentially saying that God's not good. And when you focus on what you don't have, that's what you'll have. Say that again. When you focus on what you don't have, that's what you'll have. You'll always be complaining that you don't have enough. When you focus on negative things, the problem, the circumstances that are not going uh, your way or following through with your expectations, you will always live in this weird world of inadequacy. But when we really pay attention to God's grace in our life and his gifts, even when it seems little or inadequate, it will explosively appreciate. God will take it and multiply it. God will take it and grow it. God will do a miracle through the gifts that he has given you. Here's the thing, though. I think what, what we do is we go, in the words of one scholar, we go through our days in a daze, and we don't practice um, the art of gratefulness. And it always leads to complaining. If we're not going to be intentional with being grateful with our words every single day, uh, we'll automatically get into a complaining cycle. And that complaining cycle will reinforce negativity and inadequacy. It will paralyze you and it will keep you from all that God has for your life. So we close here. How do we, how do we enter into the abundance of the kingdom of Jesus? Well, you have to appreciate um, what you have and it will appreciate have to practice thankfulness. And I think one way you can do this, and I've talked about this before, every night before uh, we go to bed, I take my kids, put them in bed, and uh, we take them through a Bible story, we memorize a verse, uh, and then we always, we want to practice noticing what God did that day. We just talk about what we're thankful for from that day. It's funny, my kids, they might be com complaining all the day long, but it's amazing to see what happens in them when they just start really thinking about what God has done and really giving voice to the good things in their life. It changes how they think. It's a miracle. It's amazing what God can do through a grateful heart. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's message from Capital Christian. We hope you will stay connected by following us online. To find out more information, visit us at capitalchristian.com. 